The hymn is number 401, <laughs> hymn 401.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, in the perplexing problems and challenges of life, help us to remember your loving kindness of old and to look at the examples of your faithfulness in the lives of the saints who have gone before us. Teach us to lay every burden upon you and to rest in your promises of life and deliverance through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We will be in Ephesians chapter 5 shortly, so if you want to get an advanced start, open your Bibles there, that would be great. In the congregation at prayer for the week, you will notice this is our second week on the sacrament of holy baptism. We have one more week next week. The Bible narratives, not the ones in the bold print per se, but the other ones, the Bible narratives in the left-hand column, Noah and the Flood, Monday and Tuesday, the Red Sea crossing on Wednesday, and then Israel crossing the Jordan on Thursday, and then Naaman the leper is cleansed on Friday, are all catechism stories to highlight the miracle of baptism. So this week, I want you to look right now, and then I'm going to take a little bit about those narratives for you. Last week we had the essence of baptism, water and the word, the benefits of baptism, that it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, gives eternal salvation. Now this week, those are great things to be rescued from death and the devil and to be given eternal salvation. This week the question is, how can water do such great things? You follow? So knowing what the question refers to is important. That it refers to the phrase from last week that baptism works forgiveness of sins. It's a happy exchange. Christ's righteousness is laid upon us, our sin laid upon him. It works, forgiveness of sins. It rescues from death and the devil. It gives eternal salvation. So I'll ask the question, you respond. How can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things. Along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water, for without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. All right, a number of things I want to draw your attention to in this section from the Catechism. 
in its supporting verse from Titus and their connections to the narratives for this week. This section of the Catechism is a great section to teach uh, grammar and theology and the relationship of such things as faith to the salvation that we have in Christ. So, how can water do these great things that we talked about? Certainly not just water. Now, if you look at the narratives for the week, the flood at Noah's time, the Red Sea crossing, Israel crossing the Jordan, the cleansing of Nahum and the leper, certainly water didn't do those things, but water was important. Water was important for God's judgment according to the word to be delivered at the time of the flood. Water was important because through water, according to the word, Noah and his family were saved, eight souls and all. So it's not the water indeed that does it, but the word of God in and with the water. But that doesn't mean the water is superfluous, unimportant. I mean, it was real water at the time of the flood, and by the word of God, that water came, the heavens were opened, and the great water from under the crust of the earth was broken up, and there was this flood for 40 days and 40 nights, and then it continued for 150 days or so, 120 days after that, before the water gradually abated. My point is, the water is real, but by the word of God, the water has its power and its significance. So certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things. So the word of God both gives the water its power to save, one, and two, describes and catechizes us in its meaning and significance. That's true of the flood. That's true of the Red Sea crossing, which was condemnation for the Egyptians, salvation for Israel, and the crossing of the Jordan that brought them into the promised land. So certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things along with the faith. Now, faith is not a work that does the things. The catechism explains faith trusts the word of God in the water. So the theology of the New Testament and the Old Testament too, for that matter, is faith is the hand that receives, the passive trust of the heart. Okay? What does faith do? Faith trusts the word of God in the water. And we learn from the scriptures that the word both creates faith and the word is that which faith trusts and believes, okay? So along with the faith, what does faith do? Which trusts this word of God in the water? The catechism is doing this a lot, introducing concepts and then explaining them. Along with, so it doesn't say, certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with faith, which is your work and contribution. No, faith trusts the word of God in the water. And then it returns to the word. All depends on the word. Without the word of God, the water is plain water. No baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. Here again, what is a baptism? Notice the catechism say, does not say, but with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a symbol of your decision for Jesus. Your act of obedience. No. Baptism is a life-giving water and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. 
That's what it is. And it's interesting how the scriptures handle this because the word baptizo, I baptize, means to wash. Okay? But here it's called a life-giving water. So it is a washing of water in the word. We'll have that in Ephesians 5 today that gives life. Okay? So you could say this. Is, is baptism a cleansing or a washing or is it a water that gives life when one receives it? The answer is, it is all of those things, okay? So that is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. And now this passage from Titus 3, and we hear it on Christmas, is a baptismal catechesis on the divine name, which is the word of God in and with the water. So, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This passage says, He saved us. That He is a reference to God the Father saved us through the washing of rebirth. There's another um, descriptor for baptism. It's not only a life-giving water, but it is rebirth. And renewal by the Holy Spirit. There's the third person of the Trinity. You've got the first person, he saved us through the washing and rebirth by the Holy Spirit, whom he, God the Father, poured out the Spirit on us generously, graciously, through Jesus Christ our Savior, second person of the Trinity. So, in holy baptism, God the Father is saving us, pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us, through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay? For what purpose? So that clauses introduce the purpose of something. So that, having been justified, declared righteous, is what justified means, by his grace, not by our works, but by his grace, we, you and I, might become heirs. Heirs through Christ, see? Having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, so our understanding of baptism, the theology rests upon the trustworthy saying of the Word of God. This is a jam-packed section of the catechism. So as you're reading the narratives for the week, have that section of the catechism in view. Secondly, the second reading in the Bible readings for the week that line up horizontally with the narrative on baptism for the week, for each day, is chosen specifically to connect with Noah and the flood on Monday, Noah and the flood on Tuesday. Peter's going to talk about how baptism saves you. Just as Noah was saved, eight souls in all through water, corresponding to this, so now also baptism saves you. Um, the Red Sea crossing is referred to specifically in Psalm 106. Israel crossing the Jordan, Mark 1, is the baptism of our Lord at the Jordan in Mark's account, which is a baptism that takes place at the Jordan River. And in that account from Mark, the heavens are ripped open. 
It's a great image. The children of Israel passed through water twice. When they left Egypt through the Red Sea, that's Wednesday's reading, and then when they crossed into the Promised Land, which is an image of heaven, the crossing of the Jordan. Okay? So, we could say, well, we had Wolf Canopy's funeral yesterday. He was baptized in 1926. When he died, he crossed the River Jordan to await the resurrection, body and soul on the last day, with all of the company of saints who have gone before. So Red Sea Crossing and Jordan River Crossing go together in that sense. And then remember the Red, uh, excuse me, the Jordan River divided when the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, that's how we got the idea for the theme for the auction, you know, because it was this year in the Christmas program. When they stepped into the water, then it was open. Jesus steps into the water at his baptism, the heavens are opened, okay? So I'm just trying to excite you and give you some um, something to salivate over, to look for these connections in the readings. All right. In addition to, oh, and then Naaman the leper, the one on Friday, that's, that is like spot-on illustration of what the Catechism for the Week teaches. This obstinate, proud, self-righteous Syrian who has leprosy is simply told by the prophet Elisha, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be made clean. I am not going to do it. Are not the rivers of Damascus greater than this mud hole, the Jordan River? Can I not wash in them and be cleansed? Do you not know who I, am, who I am, the commander of the armies of Syria? I'm an important man. I brought all this gold and silver, and you will not even give me the time of day. Because Elisha stays studying the Hebrew scriptures and sends a messenger out to him. Tell him to wash seven times. And he's offended at that. Which is the whole point. In baptism, we're crucified with Christ. We're stripped of all self-righteousness and self-reliance that we might receive and rely upon Christ alone. And it's in that narrative, three times the lowest class of society deliver the word of God to him. Okay? A slave girl whom he himself had abducted on one of the raids to Israel. And you see the love of Jesus in her. If only my master were with the prophet in Syria or in Israel, he would heal him of his leprosy. And then... Elisha's servant comes out and delivers wash seven times. And then finally, when he goes away in a huff and he still has leprosy, my master, if the, if the man had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more when he just says, wash and be clean? So by the grace of God, he washes. And according to the word, he was cleansed. How can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water did these things. What role did faith play? Finally, by the grace of God, through the word delivered to him three times, and finally, that faith received the salvation, the cleansing in the water. Okay. So great, great account. Uh, finally, in the narratives uh, for the week, this week there's St. Timothy, pastor and confessor on Wednesday, 
the conversion of St. Paul on Thursday, and then St. Titus, pastor and confessor, on Friday. The narrative in Acts 16 for St. Timothy specifically refers to Timothy, uh, who was a catechumen of the Apostle Paul. His father was Greek. His mother was Jewish. Acts 9 is the detailed account of Saul of Tarsus' conversion, which also has baptismal overtones to it. And then on Friday, St. Titus, pastor and confessor, you've got the testimony of St. Paul to Titus in Titus chapter 1, where Paul told him to put in order the things that he was told to do, namely to appoint pastors in every congregation that had been founded. That was his charge. So those narratives are good because they give you um, an opportunity to refresh your memory on Timothy and Titus and the history of Saul of Tarsus' conversion. All right. Finally, the verse for the week is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And this is one of these passages, and there's so many of them in the New Testament, that when you look at the theology of the New Testament, you see it is a baptismal theology. Jesus' ministry begins at his baptism. It culminates in his death and resurrection. We are baptized into Jesus, into his death and resurrection. It becomes our own. So when this New Testament talks about being in Christ and Christo, it is referring to our baptism because it is in our baptism where we were placed and Christo, in Christ, okay? So a passage like this doesn't have to have the word baptism in it for us to know that it is talking about baptism. This is why we want to use, as best we can, no translation is perfect, but we want to use the good translations that allow the language to speak. So this phrase in the New Testament, in Christ, is baptismal. As St. Paul said, and as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Or in Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In, in newness of life. So if anyone is in Christ... He, now this, this he here, he, she, depending who you is, is a new creation, okay? So to be placed in Christ, you are a new creation. Now the new creation does not mean the obliteration of the old creation, but rather the new creation means the restoration of the old creation, freeing her from the corruption of sin, freeing us from the corruption of sin. So this Sunday of the Transfiguration, we're beholding in Jesus not only his divine nature, that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, but we are also beholding that which will be our own. Okay? So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and these old things 
are referring to sin with all of its attendant corruption. Behold, behold, all things have become new. And this, uh, in the book of Revelation, there is... There are several quotations from Jesus in Revelation that are not explicitly found elsewhere in the New Testament record. Uh, in fact, St. Paul has one that is not exp explicitly found in the Gospels. Like, as our Lord said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You can look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and you won't find it. It's an example of many other things Jesus said which are not written here. Okay, So in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. So if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He is the one who does it. And in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it is a climax in that film as he's set his face to the cross, carrying the cross to Calvary. He says to Mary, his mother, See, I make all things new by his suffering and death. So highly baptismal. Uh, all right, let's speak it together. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And uh, this is from the passage, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, so that in Christ language is there. And that's, that passage, you know, gives the theology behind the baptism of our Lord. He comes to baptism not to have his sins cleansed, but rather to take our sin upon himself. That's why John the Baptist said afterwards, and we had that last week, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? And if you remember last week, there was a reading from Leviticus on that day about behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, how the priest laid hands on the scapegoat. The idea being in, by imputation, the sins of the congregation are imputed to the scapegoat and then the scapegoat is driven out into the wilderness. So Jesus is baptized. The heavens are open. Oh, of course, John, son of a priest, how stupid could I have been? He's the Lamb of God. He comes to baptism to have the sin of the world imputed to him. And that's John's message from, there, from then on. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. All right. The hymn 401 is a baptismal hymn and also epiphany hymn that we sang at the beginning today. But we need to get on to Ephesians chapter 5. Under the theme that we started last week, that our Lord Jesus has restored the created order, the office of husband and father of wife and mother, and that of children who are the offspring of that one flesh union. So we're made in the image and the likeness of the triune God of love. And that oneness in the community of loving persons, which is called a one flesh union, 
has, even after the fall, still the capacity for life. So it was a, we were created in the image and likeness of God before the fall into sin. Sin has corrupted it. But in Christ, what God created is redeemed, restored, reconciled to God. In other words, where Satan wished to destroy God's good creation, Christ comes to redeem it. Okay? So don't misunderstand passages that speak like in Galatians. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for there is neither slave nor free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. You are all one in Christ. That is not teaching the obliteration of God's created order. But rather, it is holding up the grace of God and the redemption of the creation in Christ, where the status that we have before God is a status of being joint heirs with Christ, whether we're male or female, whether we're Jew or Gentile, whether we are slave or free. Okay? All right, so last week we talked about the centrality of Christ's sacrifice, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, this sweet-smelling aroma. So when Paul says walk in love, it is the call to walk by faith in the sacrifice of Christ as men and women, as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, and as children. Moving ahead to verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This word for submit here means that one subordinates himself entirely to another. That's what Jesus did. What a wonder, what a mystery of the gospel. He subordinated himself to us, to our need, when he heard the voice of the Father and went to the cross on our behalf. He becomes the sin bearer. He makes the ultimate sacrifice, not for the worthy, but for the unworthy. Okay, he makes the ultimate sacrifice, not for the worthy, but for the unworthy. That becomes the engine of the Christian life. It also becomes the engine by which we understand our vocation. In another place, Galatians 2.20, I'll just quote it for you. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Now that too, that Galatians 2.20, is a baptismal text because it describes who we is in Jesus. Crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, and here's another key phrase, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So to live by faith in the sacrifice of Christ becomes that which defines our lives as Christians, as husbands, as wives even, as fathers and mothers. So then, St. Paul says, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord and 
that word submit there is the same essential, essential word as you have in verse 21. But it is a submission, yes, to the headship of the husband, but it is a submission to the sacrifice of the husband. Okay, so it says, why submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, the Lord Jesus. The church is most the bride of Christ when the church is kneeling here to receive his precious body and blood. So you see how the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross where he gives his body up unto death for his bride and when he sheds his blood in love for her cleansing in the holy sacrament, we then receive it. So see, in baptism, we're united to Jesus' sacrifice, his death that brings about the resurrection from the dead. And as members of Christ's bride, the church, we then partake of that. So wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Church, submit to your husband as to the Lord. How does the church submit? She kneels in contrition and faith. That is a radical kind of thing because it is a submission fundamentally to the gospel as opposed to the way we normally think of it, a submission to the, to the law. Kneel down, Polly. Kneel down. Don't you realize I'm your head? Submit. You will never find Jesus speaking like that in the Gospels. Never. Yet, you have many, like the Syrophoenician woman, who falls down before him and worships him. Or the woman with the flow of blood who dares to touch the hem of his garment. That is the submission that we're talking about here. Okay? She, all of these women, yield to him, to his forgiving grace to receive it. Okay? And in every one of those examples, there's always contrition and faith involved. Okay? So the primary posture of a Christian wife to her husband is that she is called to receive his love, to receive his sacrifice. Does that mean there's no you know, governance of, for lack of a better term, law? No. But it rests upon the foundation of the reception of the grace of Jesus. That's very important. So wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Hitler was chancellor of Germany. That's not what it says. But, but I'm telling you, that is the mindset. Do you remember the debate, Alex, a year and a half or two or whatever ago it was? You know, with all due respect, um, that is not the description here. The husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So, gentlemen, you want to demonstrate your headship.
Lay down your life for your wife. Sacrifice your own will, your own desires, your own self-centeredness, your own comforts to serve her in love. That doesn't mean, I mean, the G, that when the church submits to Christ and he yields to her, he doesn't yield to her every whim and fantasy that may depart from the word of God, by no means. However, what it is to be a husband is what you see in Jesus, who literally subordinates himself in a sacrifice of love for his wife, thinking more highly of her than of himself. And this is all related to those two primary commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So we talked recently, and because I'm old and forgetful, I don't remember when, but as we did talk recently, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? By loving God above all things. That's what Jesus does. Okay? So his love for his Father above all things is why he was able to make the sacrifice of love for us and love rightly uh, as a man and as bridegroom for his bride, the church. Okay, so the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. So how many of you husbands think, uh, will you marry me? You say to your beloved before she said yes, will you marry me? And how many of you said, will you marry me because I want to die for you? I want to sacrifice myself for you so that you will live. I'll never forget when Dr. Corby said, to say I love you means to say, I am prepared to do whatever is necessary so that you will live. That is lovely. That's exactly what Jesus did from the cross. I love you. And what was he willing to do? Make the ultimate sacrifice. He's the savior of the body. So will you marry me? I want to be your savior. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, and he's referring to that relationship, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, rule over your wives with an iron fist just as Christ also whipped and flogged his bride, the church. That is in your text, isn't it? Sometimes you make the point by illustrating the opposite. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. There's baptism explicitly spoken of. Notice, notice, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and then he's explicit. That is to say, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. So, I love the story of Hosea in the Old Testament, because he is called to marry a prostitute. Um, I'm not recommending that you do that, but Hosea was a prophet, and God had a mission. That in Hosea's ministry, 
and marriage. He would demonstrate the ministry and marriage of the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus. So he's called to marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer. Maybe that's why she was a prostitute. <laughs> don't, don't name your baby girl Gomer. I just don't recommend it. Or Judas. Don't do that either. So he's called to marry her. He does. And has some children with her. And then she leaves him. She goes astray. And she prostitutes herself again. And then the Lord does not say, find her and beat her to death. But rather, seek her out. Seek her, you know, like the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. And buy her back. Redemption. So here she's emaciated because of the degradation of her life. She's naked and on the slave trader's block. And... Hosea redeems her, buys her back, and cleans her up, gives her new clothing, a shower, a bath, baptismal overtones there, and she is made new in the love of her Redeemer. So Hosea is called to be a prophet that in his very life and ministry he might show forth the praises and the glories of the greater bridegroom who redeems us. So this, that he might cleanse her through the washing of water and the word in Ephesians 5 here, this is what makes the bride of Christ beautiful. So also, it is the forgiving grace of a husband who loves his wife as Christ loves the church that makes her beautiful where he puts her on a pedestal. Remember the, uh, what Jesus asked his disciples, who is greater, the one who sits at table or the one who serves? Well, the one who sits at the table. Correct. Yet I am among you as one who serves. What is the point? I have made you greater than myself. I submit to you that if we as husbands lived in that posture and disposition toward our wives, our wives would be much more fulfilled. And so would we. Because when we live according to God's order, which can only be done by the grace of God and through faith in him, there's fulfillment. So to be masculine within the marriage union and to be feminine within the marriage union has two fundamental characteristics. To be masculine within the union of husband and wife means to give, to sacrifice. To be feminine means to receive. Now, in terms of parenting, there's a difference. The mother is called to give much. But the mother is enabled to give insofar as mama receives and is supported by her husband. So husbands, your primary relationship, even when you have children, human relationship is to your husband, uh, to your wife. Husband, your sorry. I don't mean to be <laughs> DEI there, sorry, the slip of the tongue. 
Uh, husbands, your primary relationship, even if you have children, in the human relationship is to your, is to your wife. You take care of your wife. She, just like the church, when the church is taken care of by Jesus, the church is able to take care of her children. And you put that on a congregational level, when the pastor is giving the word and sacrament of Christ faithfully, and again, it doesn't mean that the law is not involved, right? But the law is in service to the gospel. So, honey, we can't do this. We are Christians, so that is the exercise of headship. Let us confess and pray God's help. When the pastor in the stead of Christ gives to the bride, the church, and the local congregation, she is able to faithfully serve her children, which are those born from the womb of the font. Okay, okay so there's nothing more beautiful then than a wife that receives the love of her husband, just like the beauty of the church is receiving the love of Jesus. To present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. So remember, see, see the connection here, love your neighbor as yourself. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And that's what Jesus did. We become members of his body in our baptism and he loves us by dying for us. And then he speaks those words of love and he gives those gestures of love to us in his body and blood uh, thereafter. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So you'll notice there then, in verse 31, St. Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, prior to the fall into sin. Okay, So anybody who says that the created order is swept away and there's now a new order, which means there can be lesbian or homosexual relations and so forth, is ignoring the clear testimony of God's word. He has not come to rearrange the creation into something different, throw away the old. The old refers to the old lie of the evil one and the concomitant sin and corruption that came a part of it. No, he has come to restore humanity in the particularities of our human existence and our relationships. And this is so because we're created in the image and likeness of the triune God of love, which means that our, our identity as men and women in marriage and in the procreation of children has everything to do with being created by the triune God of love. The image and likeness of God, then, is seen most gloriously, most brilliantly, in Jesus, who is both a true man and a faithful bridegroom 
and the everlasting Father, as the prophet Isaiah says on that Christmas reading, because he is the spiritual father of the children born of his bride, the church. Now, this is a great mystery concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's interesting how verse 32 speaks of the great mystery of the union of Christ and his bride, the church. And then we come down to earth, nevertheless. Kind of like, do the best you can to love your wife. And wife, do the best you can to respect that bloke who's your husband. You know, kind of brings it down to that. Okay. Uh, one minute left. Any quick comments? Now, I want to take it to First Peter next week to conclude this particular section on Christ has come to redeem and restore our offices. But what I want you to understand is that here's where something like confession and absolution comes into play, and I want to connect it with this, with this Bible verse. When you hear these things like what it is to be a husband or what it is to be a wife, and if you're, if you're a wife and you say, I don't want to let my husband love me or forgive me, I need to take care of myself, I'm not worthy of his love, that's the same kind of works righteousness that threatens the church and threatens individual Christians. So confession and absolution becomes a place in which we confess how we daily sin much and fall short of what it is to be a husband or a father, a wife or a mother. And then the pastor absolves us and may say to the one who is particularly burdened in conscience by failures in his or her vocation, Jesus was made to be sin for you, and he makes all things new. By his forgiving word, you are a new man, a new husband, or you are a new woman, you are a new wife, a new mother. And what God declares, that is so. So this is where, through daily contrition and repentance, the old nature dies, that the new might come forth and arise. And what raises the dead is the forgiving absolution of the Lord Jesus. Okay, more on these themes next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.